Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. It is a joy to be with you this morning as we continue in our Advent series. And the first week, we talked about foretold. Ethan uh, talked about how Joseph, in obedience, uh, obeyed the word of God. And then we see followed, Pastor Ben talked about the wise men who came and worshipped the king. And this week, we have another F, and it is forsaken. Now this morning... I would invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 13. And as you turn there, I want to remind us of an important point of mission in the life of our church. For the past month, our community groups have been uh, gathering gifts for Good Samaritan's Boys Ranch, and we were able to buy gifts off the list of 18 teenagers. Those would be teenagers who either live at the ranch in Springfield or just north of Springfield, or they're in their apartment ministry uh, and they're, they're uh, a part of that ministry as they are maybe a little older than 18. And so this was a joy to do in our community groups. It was great to see all these gifts pile up in my office. I'm very thankful to have my office back, but it was awesome to be surrounded by these gifts, to see the faithfulness of our community groups in ministering to those around them. Now, you probably expect this from the community pastor, but community groups are great. <laughs> Life is better. Life together is better. And it is, it is something I want to invite you to be a part of, to experience in this new year as community groups will launch just after this new year. And so if you want to find out more information, just, just come talk to me. I'd love to tell you about it. Now, I need to quote from one of my favorite Christmas movies. You probably have heard this quote before. The best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. I love Christmas. I just love it. It is like, I mean, if if I was able to, I'd be listening to Christmas music in July, but that's just socially frowned upon, and so I, I move away from that. But I love Christmas. When I think of Christmas, some vivid images come to mind. Singing at our Christmas Eve service. Advent candles uh, that we do our Advent devotionals around as a family. Hot chocolate with the kids. And for me, of course, at Silver Dollar City, looking at the Christmas lights. It is a wonderful time. I just love Christmas. So when you hear the word Christmas, when you think of Christmas, what images come to your mind? As you think of the Christmas season as it's quickly approaching, some of us are filled with these warm and happy Christmas memories. But for some, Christmas stirs up painful and hard memories alongside their Christmas cheer. For some, this year will be the first Christmas without a loved one. For some, this Christmas will be a reminder of some difficult times as a child. And for others, this Christmas will just seem dark 
Maybe loneliness or health or whatever it is. But there's a darkness that for some comes with Christmas. And the question that they ask is, will the Christmas light break through my darkness? And this morning, I want to remind us of this hope. That even though you're not going to maybe feel that darkness completely slip away, the light is ever present and it is breaking through. Now, you're not going to see the passage this morning played out at the local living nativity. At least, hopefully not. There's good reason for it to be skipped over. But it still reminds us of the hope that we have in King Jesus. So let's read this passage together. The passage that I have called the nightmare after Christmas, but historically it's called the massacre of the innocents. Matthew 2, starting in verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then what was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. May God be honored in the reading and the obeying of his word. This morning, I'm hopeful that this passage will be a reminder, a breaking through of light in the darkest days. Even when we feel the brokenness of sin in our world and in ourselves, and even when we feel totally forsaken by God, there is still hope in trusting in the sovereign king. The message in a sentence is following Jesus leads us to a life of opposition. Nevertheless, when you feel forsaken, trust the sovereign king. Following Jesus leads to a life of opposition. Nevertheless, when you feel forsaken, our call is to trust the sovereign king. Let's look at that first phrase together. Lead, following Jesus leads us to a life of opposition. Today's text comes after Jesus is born. We don't know how long after Jesus' birth, but it was anywhere around the first two years of his life. What's interesting is that it, when you look at the Gospel of Matthew, in the first two chapters, you don't, you don't see Matthew describing Jesus or really even his childhood or characteristics about him. I would love to hear more about that. Matthew is focused on the reception that the people are giving to this newborn king. Joseph trusts the message from the angels and obeys. The wise men follow the star to worship the new king. The Jewish religious leaders were indifferent about his arrival and the rulers opposed him. 
From the very beginning, there were different reactions to the arrival of this new king, King Jesus. And no sooner did Jesus arrive in human flesh in Bethlehem did he begin facing opposition. A life of opposition would become a recurring thread in the life of Jesus. From the nativity scene all the way to, all the way to the cross. A life of opposition. If Jesus faced a life of opposition, then shouldn't we expect something similar? I have this internal struggle with the first proposition that I gave. A life of opposition? What do you mean following Jesus leads to a life of opposition? I feel this deep within my bones. American Christianity has been steeped in the prosperity gospel. The premise of this false gospel is, if you follow Jesus with enough faith, then you will be given health and wealth. Now, like all compelling false beliefs, there is a hint, a grain of truth. And they pull it from John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Oh, abundant life. Well, that surely looks like prosperity. It looks like health, wealth, and success. It looks like the promotion you need. And then Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. By a seed of faith, aka a financial donation, you can unlock the truth of this false belief. See, this theology produces a Christian who believes that the closer they follow Jesus, it will lead them to a life of prosperity. See, I don't know about you, but my heart deceives myself. And I go, but that would be really nice, right? I mean, Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful. And it says, yeah, but Jesus does give rich blessings. You need those. And we must reconcile what scripture says with what our expectation is or what our heart is saying. How have you allowed this false belief persuade you toward the expectation that following Jesus would lead to prosperity? John Piper, a famous pastor and author, was invited to fill last minute at a conference, I mean, stadium full and it was given by the American Association of Christian Counselors. It's, the, it's one of my favorite clips on YouTube. If you have heard or seen John Piper preach before, this is a very serious man, right? He, I don't know if he laughs, maybe once, but he's very serious. He will cry, he will scream, but he is serious, right? John Piper's a serious man. So you can imagine how rattled he was when, when he comes out, behind the pulpit, and he begins giving his introduction, and the crowd begins laughing hysterically. At one point, he says this. This is a quote. A sinner. And then the crowd, like, busts out in laughter. And you can just see it in his face. I mean, you hear what he said, and he just looks up, and he's going, what is wrong with you people? 
I mean, he is disoriented. This is a professional speaker, and he does not know what's going on. It continues this pattern of him saying something serious and the crowd laughing hysterically. And at one point, he says this. You're a very strange audience because I totally didn't expect laughter. This is a serious message. These things make me cry, yet you laugh. I mean, think about this. But the the thing he didn't know is that the people expected a world-renowned Christian comedian. On their lanyard, it said that this man who was speaking to them was a comedian. And so this is an example of the power of expectations in our lives. The audience was listening to a serious message, but since their expectation was that this is funny, they heard everything through the filter of that expectation. See, if your expectation of following Jesus is prosperity, then no wonder it is so disorienting when you are slapped in the face with the reality of the cost of discipleship. It is disorienting. So, a bad diagnosis becomes a crisis of faith. I must not have enough faith. A loss of job becomes a disaster. When an investment goes upside down, you wonder if God is even there, if he is even real. Because we forget what he says in John 15. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, this is just one verse of many times where Jesus is trying to align the expectations of his followers with the reality of what discipleship or taking up their cross looks like in their lives. When following Jesus leads us to opposition, we should not be surprised. It should be expected. You might ask, but why? Why does following Jesus require we live a life that faces opposition? And the answer really is simple. You know this, but maybe you just haven't aligned this. There is one who opposes the kingdom of God. There is an opposer, and because there's an opposer, we will face opposition. 1 Peter 5, 8. Our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The devil and his demons stand in opposition to the kingdom of God and are actively working against the people of God. The devil uses two primary means, two ways to exercise this opposition against the kingdom of God. The first, opposition in forsaken places. Let's read again verse 14, 13, sorry. Now when they, the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. 
Now, Mary and, Jesus, Mary and Joseph's journey with Jesus was anything but ordinary. They had already fleed their home once to uh, be a part of the census, and now they're being asked to flee again. So what could keep them from returning home? The plot of a forsaken king. See, King Herod wanted to kill Jesus, and they must go to a forsaken land. Egypt would have been way down the list of ideal locations for them to journey to. For them to flee this danger, they had to go to a historic enemy of Israel. This is unfamiliar land. They would have a very minor Jewish population, so they would likely not have family there, and this would be unfamiliar, and they have a baby with them. A baby that Herod is bent on killing, and they flee. In, in Joseph's obedience, see in verse 14, he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. That language there, it, we could say a lot about it, but all that needs to be said is it's immediate. There is no delay to Joseph's obedience. He hears the word of the Lord and he does the word of the Lord. May a similar rhythm come out in our own lives. In Joseph's obedience, we see that God has more than one way of preserving his people. Sometimes he makes incredible displays of power, and other times he works by night. He works in the shadows. I wonder if we too often describe, prescribe to God a fixed plan of action. What if he were to call you or me out of what is familiar? to call you out of what is comfortable? Have we placed parameters around where we believe God should call us to be? Have we built a fence around our lives of obedience? This is what's familiar to me. This is what I'm comfortable with, Lord. Call me within these bounds. Who's sitting on the throne of that life? Often we are afraid of, to, of going outside of those bounds of familiarity or comfortability because of the simple truth that our fear outweighs our trust. Our fear of what might be in opposition of what we believe, who we are, what we stand for, keeps us from trusting in the Lord. See, practical worldly wisdom would tell us that it makes no sense for Joseph and his family to flee to Egypt. It makes no sense for the father to send his son as a baby. And then that baby to live a life as a martyr, as someone who is cursed on the cross. It doesn't make sense worldly, but we can find comfort here and that we have the opportunity to trust our sovereign king. Verse 15, it says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now that's a, that's a quote from Hosea 11.1, 1, and that prophet is simply describing the Israelites' exodus from Egypt as the departure of God's son, is what Hosea says. So God's son being Israel, there's a future familiar fulfillment of that prophecy and that Jesus is the true son of God. 
In both cases, the descent into Egypt was to escape danger, and the return was important to the nation's providential history. But Matthew heightens Hosea's words and says that there's an even greater fulfillment of this prophecy, and that fulfillment is found in Jesus Christ. Jesus, the greater Moses. So God calls Joseph to flee with Mary and Joseph to a forsaken land. And now we have a natural tendency to choose the path of least resistance. And the only thing that we can do that confronts that tendency is for our trust in a higher power, our trust in the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, to outweigh our fear of what that resistance might bring. So as Joseph was called to the path of the most resistance and into Egypt, recognize that as you follow Christ, you too might be led into places that completely and utterly oppose everything that Jesus stands for. And the second source of opposition that will inevitably come as we follow Jesus is opposition from forsaken people. The Herod mentioned here is known in history as Herod the Great. But one commentator gave a much better, much better title for Herod. It is Herod the Paranoid. Herod the Paranoid is a much fitting, more fitting title than Herod the Great. His brutal acts became famous throughout all of Rome. Josephus, a Jewish historian, wrote two full volumes about Herod's life because of his incredible work in building monuments, building fortresses, building sanctuaries, and also his successful political career. Herod Herod the Great ruled from 37 BC until he died in 4 BC. Even though Herod had an impressive political career, his family was uh, bonkers, you'd say. They would have their own reality TV show. That would be what we would do in our culture, right? Put them on TV. It'll be entertaining. And if there is such a thing as must-see reality TV, this is it. Herod married 10 wives. Each wife gave him a prince. So it's already set for a great show, right? These 10 princes grow in jealousy. They begin trying to poison one another because that makes sense. And then Herod steps in and him being paranoid, he decides, well, I'll just kill three of you. And he kills three of his own sons. And then he becomes paranoid about his favorite wife and chooses to kill her. Herod the paranoid. One of my favorite stories that I read about Herod was he invited the high priest to Jericho for a swim. And during that swim, he accidentally drowned. And the pool was only about three feet deep. So this accident, you know, was a a greater plot at, at hand. I mean, this is Herod the paranoid. And now he is nearly 70 years old old and he is stricken with an incurable disease. So, so his, he's seeing how his life is coming to an end. And at this time, Herod heard of wise men traveling from the east. And they were seeking to worship a newborn king that they called king of the Jews, which would have been Herod's title. 
Now the plot thickens in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. See, Herod tries to trick the wise men, but he himself gets tricked. See, no one likes to look like a fool, but proud kings don't allow it. They hate it. So what does Herod do? The text says Herod became furious. Literally, it's translated very enraged. There's an adjective like losing your mind. If you put it on the scale of anger, right? Step one, frustrated. Step two, angry. Step three, hangry. But then you have step four, very enraged. You lose your mind at this point, right? It's the I'm uncontrollable. And Herod's plan B was much more evil than we could even imagine. Herod is losing his mind and he chooses to kill all the boys, which would have been about 10 to 20 boys in this area and just murders them like that. Jealousy, protection, self-preserving. Herod was very familiar with the Jewish teachings, but out of the hardness of his heart, instead of obedience, he became a vessel of destruction. But surprisingly, Matthew says, this was to fulfill the prophet of Jeremiah. Then what was, was fulfilled, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Jeremiah 31, 15 here, it speaks of Rachel. And she was a common picture for the Israelites as the mother of God's people. And here she again has a new reason to weep for her children. The original fulfillment was a fulfillment that she was weeping for those who were being exiled into Babylon. But here she has another reason to weep and to not be consoled. And that reason is because the children of God, the children in Bethlehem, those two and under, are murdered. King Herod opposed this new king. He was the only king of the Jews. And he did everything in his power to protect what he felt was rightfully his. Israel's history, the early church, and even our church today is filled with stories of people who radically oppose the throne of Christ, the kingdom of God. Herod is just one terrible example or illustration of what someone will do to protect their kingdom as it stands against the kingdom of God. Recently, I watched a show that depicted the rivalry that exists between the U.S. national soccer team and the Mexico national soccer team, and it was awesome. Now, they have an epic rivalry, if you know nothing about it, and it spans many, many years. And it was fascinating, as you hear these stories, they will do anything to beat them, apart from cheating. Maybe they do cheat, but I mean, they're doing everything because in their words, they hate them. I mean, they, they despise them. 
They want to hurt them. One, one guy said, you know, I would, I would say that this is the best part of my career was scoring that winning goal. It was the best part of my life. And it's like, whoa, okay. Now there's rivalries in all sports, right? You got the Chiefs and the Raiders, the Cubs and the Cards. You even have one here, Ozark versus Nixa, right? There's rivalries in sports, but sports, that's just a game. There's a greater rivalry. This rivalry is between the kingdom of light and the domain of darkness. They're not kingdoms that get along. They are pitted against each other. Now, the victory has already been sealed by the blood and resurrection of Christ awaiting his return, but the domain of darkness is actively opposing this kingdom of light. And as we're caught in this epic rivalry, rivalry, wouldn't you expect to face opposition as you are called ambassadors of the kingdom of God? If you're ambassadors, how dare us try to avoid the cross? How dare us try to avoid opposition? It is part of our lives. Satan today is still fighting in every place and through every person that will grant him allegiance. And he uses them to actively oppose the people of God. So as you follow Jesus and face this opposition, the question that might come to mind is, well, what do we do? Now we're not called to just sit and be apathetic towards it. Like, oh, this is how the world is. We're in the end times. Sorry about you. That's a very passive. But we're also not going to swing the pendulum and say, let's face the opposite. You know, and you become the one seeking. You're the opposer, right? I mean, come on, people. Like, as Christians, what is our response? And our response is not to do either of those extremes. It's to trust the sovereign king. But before we trust the sovereign king, and I use those words very specifically, sovereign and king, but before we even get to trust, we first must place our faith in him. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, if you don't have it memorized, that's your goal before Christmas. It is the ultimate story of our salvation. It is concise. It is beautiful. For by grace, you have been saved. By grace, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Why? No one may boast. So that no one may boast. This is not a result of works. It is the gift of God. If you will place your faith in God, faith builds trust. See, the gift of salvation is offered to us by grace through faith. Once we have been called out of darkness into this faith, and we are gifted that faith, and we receive that faith, our act of obedience is to trust. Once we are gifted that faith, our act of obedience is to trust. When you trust someone, there's an element in that definition of being convinced that you are firm. You believe that they will not let you down. 
You believe that your life is better in their hands than your own. You trust that person. Now, listen, if you're ever on a plane, you should never go to the cockpit and kind of look around and say, should I trust you with all this? I mean, I really think this little, little lever thingy should go this way and that. And should, that's ridiculous. You would never do that. Every time you get on a plane, you are trusting that pilot. You're trusting lots of other people, but you're trusting that pilot. You're trusting that pilot to do his job. But friends, we have the greatest opportunity. We have the greatest invitation to trust one who is sovereign. To trust the king who is sovereign. As Jesus was talking about his upcoming suffering and death, he gives his disciples a reminder of where to place their trust. And he says this, I have said these things to you, his disciples, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation or trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So when they experience tribulation, what should they do? Take heart. Means to gain confidence in something. Means to be fully convinced of something. To take heart. Jesus is asking his disciples to trust him. Even amid the suffering they will face, even amid the confusion of what in the world is this guy's plan, even though you told us, we're, we're out of here, man. This is crazy. Even amidst that confusion and doubt and struggle, take heart. Trust me. Now, there are two key ways that we'll end with as a Christian can trust in the one who has overcome. The first, you trust God's sovereign plan. You trust God's sovereign plan. Now, I, I almost didn't include this one because it's a little too personal for me. I am a planner. Amen? Anyone else a planner? Yeah. Okay. Some of you got a nudge and you're like, yes. Oh, goodness. I'm a planner and it bothers me at times when we don't go according to plan. Now, that happens with my wife and I. Having kids has wrecked my world. Being in ministry really bothers me sometimes. Like, having a plan is important, but my struggle of trusting the Lord is when my plan is in opposition to the king's plan. And I go, I really wouldn't do it this way, God. I mean, I've calculated a few things. I've thought about what's best for me and, and my people. And this is really the wrong, ridiculous. I mean, I saying it out loud, I'm like, oh my word. But in my heart, that's what's trying to deceive me. That I believe that I maybe am more sovereign than my sovereign king. Jesus, from the very beginning, was faced with the opposition that ultimately climaxed in the cross. God's sovereign rescue plan surpassed all the wisdom of the world. It created confusion. You see that in his followers. You see that all around him. And in my moments of doubt and wonder, if I am more fit to move forward with my plan than his plan, I am asked to trust God's sovereign plan. God being sovereign means he has the power, he has the knowledge, and he has the authority. See, I might have the authority to work and act in my own life. I do not have the knowledge, and I am deceived to believe that I have the power. 
And realistically, the only one who has the authority in our lives is the one who is our creator. He owns our lives. So in this moment, I see what God is doing and I cross my arms. And I think, oh man, shouldn't we try a different way? I don't think that's a good idea. And as I follow Jesus, I'm called to uncross those arms and to put my hands out and say, I don't understand it. I don't even know it fully, but I trust you. I trust your plan and I trust who you are. Romans 8, of course, is a good reminder of this. It says this in verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And you see that in Hobby Lobby on a pillow and you'll be like, amen. But often our quotes stop there. The verse is much more beautiful than that, friends. And whenever we think of that plan, we go, oh, that's the abundant life. Prosperity, health, and we're back to square one because we've forgotten that the verse continues. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. I love this. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the plans for your life is not health, wealth, and success. That is much too close. He has an eternal plan for your life. And it's not reliant on you. The king, has already compl- the king has already proclaimed that it is in his hands and it will be one of glorifying you. Has nothing to do with you, with me. We're invited to trust in God's sovereign plan. God's sovereign plan who, for those who love and trust him is fully in his hand. Now, some of you in this room, I've, I've sat with you. I've been in community with you, and I've heard some of the trials that you have personally walked with, walked through. And I've walked with you through some of those things. And I can't even understand it. I I don't even know what you're going through, what you're thinking. I can't fully empathize. I can just sympathize. But that's not me. That's not for me. Friends, we have one, the sovereign king, who does not sit on his throne and say, good luck. He stepped off his throne. He came to us. He came into our darkness, into our brokenness. He experienced suffering fully because he was fully man. And in that suffering, we have a sympathizing savior. So even when you feel alone in that darkness, know that there is one who has come close and he's inviting you, even when you don't know what's going on, even when you can't understand how can this all fit together? Is this really for good? He comes to you and he says, would you trust my plan? I can't understand it, but Christian, he does. And if Jesus experienced these trials, 
as he submitted in death to his father's will perfectly on the cross. His plan for our lives too will be opposition. How dare we avoid the cross? What plans in your life are you struggling through? Maybe things that have happened or things that are just not turning out like you expected. And how can you move today from a position of arms crossed to your hands open? Say, I don't understand. I'm not saying that. I'm saying I trust you. I have faith. This is a faith relationship between me and Jesus Christ. And I trust your plan for my life, even though my plan would look really different. And the final way we can trust is we can trust the king's character. The gospel of Matthew continues to stress God's predictions about and his protection of his Messiah to help his readers recognize that Jesus is the promised king. But there are two kings in our text and they are meant to be contrasted with one another. Herod, the wicked king. Jesus, the the righteous king. Herod, the tyrant. Jesus, the servant. Herod, the deceiver. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Herod, the selfish protector. Jesus, the descended one. Herod, the great. Jesus, the infinitely greater. As Christ descended, it was a full revelation of the grace of God to us. As he stepped off the throne, And Paul reflects on that moment. I cannot say it better than one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. Philippians 2. We've already read some of it this morning. It was on the screens in one of our songs and it was amazing, but I'm gonna read the whole thing. If you have your Bible, let's take a moment, turn there. I want you to read this in front of you. Philippians 2. It is beautiful. And may it stir our hearts and minds of the one who is worthy of our trust, the sovereign king. And you could read one through 11, but for time, I'll start in verse five. So Philippians two, verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Don't, don't, don't let that hold you up, right? Grafts. He just didn't hold on to it. He didn't cling to it. He let go of it freely. He submitted. Verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Yes, in heaven. Yes, on earth. And yes, under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Christmas celebrates the arrival of the greater King the king who's over all other kings, the Lord of lords and the king of kings, the king that always wanted to dwell with his people from the earliest days of the rebellion in the garden. He started a rescue plan, the father, son, and spirit, and the father sent 
the sovereign king, King Jesus. He took on flesh. He was our substitute. He paid what we deserve, the penalty of our sin. And as our substitute, we are gifted by grace through faith, salvation in his name. Now, he is not a passive king. We don't live in between two worlds in the sense that he came and we're just here waiting for him to come again. He is a sovereign king who intercedes on our behalf. He is our sovereign king that as we pray, as scripture says, he is inceding, he is interceding by the father's side. This is our sovereign king. Would you trust him this morning? Following Jesus leads to a life of opposition. Never. When you feel forsaken, trust the sovereign king. Would you pray with me?